You're listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get started with this week's episode, a few of our normal announcements. Please follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground at Hazard Ground Podcast. Of course, don't forget about our promotion with Amazon. Go to our website, HazardGround.com. Click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab. It'll redirect you right to Amazon. You can do all of your normal Amazon shopping, and we will get a percentage of what you guys spend, and then we take a percentage of that and donate it right back to some of the great charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground. Of course, uh, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. Um, you can watch all of our episodes there as well and download the Killcliff TV app. Uh, very much a, a way to look at all of the podcasts that we do on the Killcliff TV app. Don't forget about our friends at Killcliff. Go to killcliff.com for all of your clean energy drinks, including CBD products, some of the best in the biz. Killcliff.com. You guys know me. I'm a huge fan of the pre workout and the post workout as well. And a quick shout out, by the way. To uh, Jacob, and I don't want to give away his last name, but he made a donation. He's from Canada, sent us an email, loves the show. Uh, he has absolutely been a huge fan of the show, and thank you so much for the donation. We appreciate anything that you guys are wanting to give. All that goes to offset our costs. I know you guys think that the podcasts tend to make a ton of money, but not all of them do, not this one. Uh, and even at that, whatever we do make, we try to donate right back to uh, veterans charities. So uh, we appreciate the donation. It goes to uh, great causes. And again, uh, thank you, Jacob, for being a huge fan of the Hazard Ground. That means don't forget to leave us Apple reviews. Continue to help grow this show wherever you get your Apple review. Leave us a five-star rating. Give us a thumbs up. Tell us why you love the show. We certainly appreciate it. All right, on to this week's guest. And uh, sort of a unique guest this week because it's not necessarily combat-focused or combat-related, but something that is very, very important, not only to veterans, but to all people. He's a retired Army colonel who spent 30 years in the Army with multiple stations overseas and deployments overseas, including Pakistan. He currently now, after his career, Career is a veteran's advocate for prostate cancer as he was stricken with cancer during his time in the service. After it going away, it resurfaced again, then developed another form of cancer as well. He currently works with an organization called Zero Cancer. He is Colonel Retired Mark Franklin joining us here on the Hazard Ground. Mark, welcome and thank you so much for being here. Thanks very much for having me. Appreciate it, Mark. All right. Uh, certainly a long, distinguished career. And it's crazy because when I go through your bio and look at all the jobs that you've had throughout your career, you've been everywhere. Uh, you've done a variety of different things. And as I mentioned, even a, uh, a deployment in Pakistan as well. You spent a lot of time in Korea uh, as well, working over there and, and, and personally looking at uh, you know North Korea and looking for Korean War uh, veterans remains. You're a veterans advocate now. It's You know, you look back on 30 years. Are you ever shocked at how much you were able to do in all things considered a relatively short amount of time you know i've, I've reflected back on it quite a bit and um yeah i was commissioned an infantry officer and then later on and i and i loved the the camaraderie that comes with serving with infantrymen and soldiers and that was a a great experience but when i was made aware of the foreign area officer program 
uh, I thought that might be a better fit for me. So I applied and was accepted into that. And as it turns out, I was a much better foreign area officer than I was an infantryman. So that worked out better for me. <laughs> um, looking back, I can't think of a single job that I regret taking or having in the military. And I was never one to kind of pursue a particular career path. I just kind of let the Army tell me where to go and make the best of that situation. And it has it totally worked out for me. I, um, I've had some very, very difficult jobs, but I've learned from all of them. I've had some great leadership, great mentoring throughout my career. And so all in all, that 30 years, uh, you know, I'm going to I'm going to go back. One of the fellows you interviewed was Joe Galloway. Yeah. And Joe helped me in my current job with the Vietnam War commemoration where we were doing a, a video record oral history interviews of Vietnam veterans. And when we developed the question set, Joe inserted this question and it was a great question. He would ask Vietnam veterans, did you take more? from your experience in Vietnam that was good and positive and you invested in blood, sweat, and tears. And of course, the, the reactions were, the responses were mixed. Many would say yes, some would say no. But if I applied that question to myself, did you take more from your military career that was positive than you invested in blood, sweat, and tears? I'd say absolutely. I got more out of my career than I gave. Um, that might sound selfish, but it's true. So looking back, it was a, it was a great career. I am, um, and I am very, very grateful for the opportunities I had over those 30 years. Well, again, uh, it really is one of those things where, and I've said this repeatedly on the show, um, the Army has a unique way of putting you where you're supposed to be, right? Um, it's A lot of people lobby for assignments, and that's fine. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. You know, Do what you want to do. Make the most of your, your Army career forever, how long or short it is. Um, but more often than not, you're in the right place at the right time, and that's uh, – uh, that's thanks to the wonderful genius folks that uh, that decide where <laughs> where we're all supposed to be when we're supposed to be there in the military, right? Uh, but start back at the beginning for you. You mentioned being commissioned as a second lieutenant uh, in yep. the infantry, did ROTC. Uh, sort of, how does that whole thing come about? Is that something you knew you always wanted to do? No, in fact, um, I'm the most unlikely career officer you'll ever meet. So I was in a in an ROTC program at Western Maryland College. It's now renamed McDaniel College yep. in uh, Western Maryland. Very Carol familiar County. with it. Yeah, that's where the yeah. uh, the Ravens used to have their training camp out yes. there. Yeah. Are you a Ravens fan, Mark? No, I but I lived in Baltimore for about a decade. I went to school at Loyola, so I'm I'm quite the Maryland is a, a turf that I've plowed several times over. All right. Well, I am a suffering Orioles fan, and I say I suffering yes, because yes. I am suffering. Yes, and I'm also a, a, a huge Ravens fan. But anyway. Uh, commissioned, and I was told prior to going down to my commissioning that I was going into transportation corps. And I thought, well, that's a good fit. You know, I can parlay that later on into something. And I was going to go into the New Jersey National Guard. So I walked down. Uh, I got commissioned in December as opposed to waiting till May. And I and my mom and my grandmother are there that kind of, you know, witness this whole thing. And they, I've got the transportation signals on my lapels. I'm all ready to go. And I get down there, and Captain Grippo, who was my PMS at the time, said, Mark, we got to change. You're no longer going into the Transportation Corps. You're going." And he's, as he's saying this, he's removing the transportation insignias from my lapels, and he's pulling out the cross rifles. And he said, you're going in the infantry. Congratulations. Well, I'm not going to say anything. I'm like, what? Okay. So I, I get commissioned as an infantry officer. I go to the uh, infantry officer basics basic course at Fort Benning, Georgia. And I'm kind of a knucklehead in terms of, you know, most of my peers at that time were West Point graduates. 
And say what you want, but my experience at the IOBC, at the Infantry Officer Basic Course with these West Point graduates, is they took me under their wing and they got me squared away. And I just kind of fell in love with the whole camaraderie and the whole infantry culture and psyche. So when it's about time to graduate, I said, hey, is there a way I can do this full time? I don't want to go in the New Jersey National Guard. I want to do this as an active duty officer. And there was no hesitation. The admin folks at Fort Benning made that happen. My first assignment was to Fort Lewis, Washington. Um, And then I began my career as an infantry officer with the 9th Infantry Division. That was also a great experience. I had the uh, I went to um, the infantry mortar platoon leaders course, and so my first assignment was weapons platoon leader. I had the eighty one millimeter mortars and uh, two tow jeeps, and I don't know. You probably don't remember the gamma goat. It was the most miserable piece of gear the army ever came up with because they were always broke and it was different. Now someone are probably going to disagree with me. That's what supposedly carried the eighty one millimeter mortars. Usually we humped them on our backs. Had a great great time at the with the ninth infantry. Uh, if you know a General Barry McCaffrey, he was my brigade commander, had a couple of run-ins with him a few times. All of mine were positive. I can't say that about all of my peers, but mine were pretty positive. And um, and we were the test fits. So we were testing dune buggies and the light attack vehicles and all kinds of neat stuff. And I just thought this was a great, a, a great experience. But our battalion XO was also a foreign area officer. He was a Middle East guy. And uh, I went over and talked to him, and he explained to me about the program and said, look, it's a, it's a great career. You will be, It'll be very, very difficult to make it past a lieutenant colonel uh, because the inventory is so small, and they only need so many. But if that's what you want to do, uh, he encouraged me to do it. So after the uh, advanced course, I applied to the FAO program. I was accepted. I initially wanted Vietnam, Southeast Asia, Vietnam language. And I came back and said, uh, well, I'll tell you why. You know, I'd grown up, I wasn't obviously not a Vietnam War veteran, but I'd grown up watching the Vietnam War on television. It was the America's first television war. Right. Uh, And it always ticked me off the way we left things there because we had men and women that were basically doing what they were told. They weren't treated particularly well, and we did not leave victors of that conflict. So part of me wanted to go back and kind of figure out why and see what we could, what, what, what contributions I might be able to make as a fail. Uh, but the Army had a different plan. And they said, no, we don't need any more Southeast Asia fails. What we need are Northeast Asia fails. And so you're going to be a Korea fail. And I said, yeah, but I really want to go to Vietnam. They said, you're not listening, Captain. <laughs> this is the Army. You're going to be a Korea fail. And I saluted, said, yes, sir. It was a good decision. And I'm glad I did it. I, um, I went to Indiana University where I got a master's in East Asian language and culture. The Army paid for all that. From there, I went to the Defense Language Institute where I continued language training. And then after that, to Seoul for more language training. Um, got to meet and got to learn Korea pretty well because you're given a pretty you know, generous travel budget to travel around. And then as a fail payback assignment, I stayed in Korea and I was assigned as the executive assistant to the deputy commander-in-chief, which is a Korean four-star. He's the deputy to the, uh, to the American four-star for Combined Forces Command. And, um, and that was also a wonderful experience. They treated me wonderfully. I improved my Korean language skills. And I would, um, at least twice a week, go into the general's office and help him improve his English skills. And so it was a, a great tour. Um, 
and basically kind of set me on a path to be a foreign area officer for Northeast Asia. And it's been um, it's been pretty good after that. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's funny. You hear FAO and all I ever think of is field artillery, right? Like, yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> For years, and then you start talking about foreign affairs and everything else, and yeah. um, you know it's interesting because it seems like something that is so out of the scope of what a lot of us can actually do, right? Like, I'm not a political science major. Like, I, I don't, you know, I study foreign affairs as much as I can read in a newspaper. Uh, yes, I date myself when I say that, but or read online uh, and and you know just go in knowledge of history and everything else. Were you ever sort of overwhelmed at the concept of the idea of foreign affairs? Because it just, it seems a little daunting to me, at least. You know, you can be, but what what happens when you become a foreign area officer is you can serve in a, in a variety of different uh, sectors, if you will. So, security assistance is one; intelligence is another. And then policy kind of recommendations development. And that's really where I kind of uh, gravitated toward is the policy. And, and that is either improving relationship with allies and partners or trying to establish a, a stronger, better mill-to-mill relationship with uh, competitors. And I won't say necessarily adversaries. But um, so what happens is you are – and when I mentioned I had great leadership and great mentors is that I had – senior foreign area officers that I worked for that had been in the business, and they they do a good job training you on what the current issues are and where the Army needs help and where the Army can use, you know, whatever skills you develop. So a lot of being a foreign area officer is establishing relationships with your foreign counterpart. So in my case, obviously, I had a, a Korean general, but also his staff. Uh, I went to the Korean Army Staff College in Chinhae. As you know, most guys go to CGSC. I went to the Korean Army Staff College. Didn't get uh, credit for it, but it was it was a credit to me. And so you meet Korean officers that you are work with every single day, and I stay in contact with them. And these relationships help you as you develop your foreign area officer career later on. And so one of the things that I gravitated towards was the policy element where we were trying to improve and that could be about things like how do we reorganize or reset our relationship with this country or how we might um, establish a different kind of approach in dealing with a country like the Republic of Korea. And we've been pretty successful there. But what happens when you are a general Northeast Asia FAO is that they can assign you to a variety of places. So Korea was my place. I went back to the Pentagon on the Army staff, continued as the Korea-Japan uh, desk officer and helping the Army Chief of Staff and the Army Staff leadership maintain our relationship with those two countries. Um, and then you kind of go back and forth. Uh, I spent some time in the J-2 on the Joint Staff in the intelligence world with Asia-Pacific um, issues. Uh, and that's an eye-opener. Highly, you know, a lot of classified information. You get a lot more information about what is going on in your region. I never really got into the security assistance role until I went to Pakistan, which was completely out of my AO. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, that was kind of like the Army's way of letting me get as close to the fight as I could without actually sending me to Afghanistan or, or, or Iraq. Well, I don't want to get too far. I just want, where were you on 9-11? So, like, explain to me, you know, because yeah. uh, you, that seems like when 9-11 happens as a foreign area officer, like, you know, you're right in the mix of at least – some of the early conversations I had, what the second and third order of effects are of everything. 
Yeah, at that time, I was actually in the Pentagon in the J-2 staff as, the, as one of the J-2 planners. And, of course, my area was, was East Asia, and that attack came from the Middle East, if you will. But it, it's an odd thing. We were, I, was, we were, I was sitting there with my cubicle mate watching the television about the attack on the, um, in New York on the, on the Twin Towers. And all of a sudden, my cube mate gets a phone call from his wife who worked right across the street from the Pentagon, and she is frantic, and she said, your building is on fire. Now, you got to remember, during that time, <laughs> the Pentagon was under a lot of renovation, and where we were located was at the opposite. You couldn't have been more opposite from where the aircraft impacted the building. So you learn to tune out a lot of noise because you always heard construction noise and bangs and booms, and you didn't pay a lot of attention. We never heard a thing. But about the time he turned around and said, hey, Mark, my wife just – set our buildings on fire. That's when the alarms went off in our part of the Pentagon. I walked out, opened the door, and by then you could see people were already evacuating. There was debris, kind of dust clouds in the hallway, and it was time to go. So you didn't feel the vibrations in the building? We had no clue. In fact, if his wife hadn't called to tell us, well, that's not true because the alarms eventually did go off to say time to get out of here. So I was on something called the flyaway team. It was my job, along with my J-3 operations counterpart and another intel uh, officer at the time, to go to the um, alternate center for the alternate site for the Pentagon, Raven Rock. It's like one of the worst kept secrets in the world. It's that, you know, cool place (laughs) up in Pennsylvania that everybody doesn't know about. So a lot of them flew up. I went up in my POV and uh, we got up there. And we're preparing a briefing. At that time, the Deputy Secretary of Defense was Paul Wolfowitz. And his uh, military counterpart was, um, at that time, was General Kellogg. He was the J-6 at the time. And so I come out with my J-3 counterpart to give them an updated briefing. And I will tell you without shame that we gave Deputy Secretary of Defense Wolfowitz and General Kellogg the worst briefing they ever got in their entire life. Because we had it all wrong. We had the wrong planes, wrong times, wrong places. And General Kellogg, to his credit, said, okay, guys, we haven't given you enough time. Go back, get it right, let us know when you're ready. So we did. We went back, and that's when Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld made one of the best decisions I thought he could have made. He said, we are not letting these guys think they got us down. Pull everybody back to the Pentagon. We are not operating out of the alternate site. We will operate out of the Pentagon. Doesn't matter the damage. So about midnight to one in the morning, we all head back to the Pentagon, set up shop in the alert center and go to work. Wow. That was my experience with uh, 9-11. Did you think that was a bad idea to go back into the building? You know, it was a symbolic message that he was sending to the country and the rest of the world that, yeah, you have hit us. You've given us a black eye, but you haven't knocked us down. I will tell you that the roof was still on fire yeah. and a lot of bombs here is up there. So that presented a challenge. But I mean, I'll like, you know, from what I understand, I'm not a doctor, but, you know, inhaling burning jet fumes seems probably not like the best health conscious decision. Yeah, we didn't think about it like that, I guess. Oh, and you, okay. you could definitely smell it. And, you know, we that really never even entered our minds. We wow. thought, you know what? We like the fact that we're going to go back and let them know that they didn't knock us out. I mean, I get it. I get the emotion of the moment. Uh, You know, look, it's 20 years later, right? We can all sit here on Monday morning quarterback this thing. I just, you know, was curious 
what, what your feelings were. And if you if you were supportive of it in the moment, I, I support all you guys who were. I think that's you know the easiest way to handle. It. There's no point in second guessing this stuff now, two decades later. Well, but you make a good point, Mark. And we never even thought about that. At least I hadn't thought about it at the time. And um, and again, if you look at where the where the impact occurred, uh, there was fire and there was smoke and there was dust debris throughout the building. And I won't say that it was all cleared out, but um, by the time we got back to the alert center, it had been several hours, and the Arlington Fire Department was incredible in getting the job done. Um, they're, they're, they're true heroes of that day as well. And so it was just a matter of time before we, the fire was out, and now it was just a matter of doing recovery, remains recovery, and, um, and starting to rebuild. You know, what is the, just a curiosity, I mean, what, you go back in the building to work to do what? Like that's at that point. I mean, okay, I'm stam- I'm stammering over myself here because I'm just like it's the Pentagon. You guys clearly have a different view of the world than everybody else does. Clearly, you have been working through notifications and messages for weeks now, as we all know, as we Monday morning quarterback. And I just said I wasn't going to do it, but I'll do it anyway. Um, you know, you guys had had knowledge that there was a possibility of something this happened. You guys have a better idea of exactly who did this how they accomplished it and everything else, and most people do at this point in time. You go back to work to do what, though? So what I remember most is that we decided early on that we had been way too stovepipe, too siloed in the way we manage information right. between the military, the law enforcement, yep. and the intelligent, different intelligence agencies. And so right away, one of the ways we fixed that is we brought these folks inside the alert center, which in the past was that wasn't going to happen. Right. So we had an FBI agent there as part of it, and we brought in folks from the other intelligence agencies. And our initial mission was to figure out what happened and who did this. Our initial mission was to figure out who did it and how we go about kind of um, addressing that, and then what are the next steps. Now, remember, I'm, I'm a lieutenant colonel, which might seem like a – fairly high rank but at that level you're not you're just basically another you know officer given a job and so we were monitoring traffic and trying to do our own analysis on where this came from who did it and what what are our next steps in recommending that to the leadership that's what we were basically assigned to do initially and then as time went on as more information came in that's when you can start developing courses of action and what you want to do all right. I don't want to kind of, you know, rehash all of that. But for you after that, I mean, obviously you work at the Pentagon at the time. Post 9-11, how much longer are you at the Pentagon? What's your next assignment? Did you want to stay? Did you want to go into a different field? I mean, do you want to go back to being a foreign affairs officer? Did that seem like a silly thing at this point in time? Take me through it. No. I, you know, I, I kind of figured, so I'm in the J-2, I'm a lieutenant colonel, and I'm thinking – you know, I remember thinking back to that battalion XO when I was lieutenant saying getting beyond lieutenant colonel is going to be tough. Um, so I was looking for an assignment that might kind of that I, that I would find interesting. That and, and when I told you before, I never really pursued an assignment. That's mostly true. But when there was a when I called my branch guy and said, hey, I'm coming up, getting ready to, to, to PCS out of here. Where can I go? And, oh, by the way, I'd kind of like to stay here because the kids were in high school and I didn't want to move them. He said, hey, there's a job at the Defense Prisoner of War Missing Personnel Office, and it's a failed billet. You'd be good for it. Why don't you take that? So I said, okay, I'm in. 
And man, I'll tell you, that was a really, really good job because that now here's the thing. I was assigned as the China policy desk officer. So my my job was to go to Beijing and work with the Chinese on recovering remains from the Korean War that might have actually happened in China. So if you think about your geography, of course, the Yalu River and you've got right across from North Korea, you've got Dandong which is the, a, a city on the river. And um, we actually had a, a crash there, Troy Cope, who was an F, uh, F-4 pilot in the Air Force in the Korean War. And he had been shot down, augured into Dandong. And so that was one of my very first um, missions, was to kind of figure out if we can get his remains. And that's a whole story. I don't know how much time we got, but that's a, that's a really interesting story. Um, well, go ahead. Okay, well, in Dandong, they had their own military museum. No, in Shenyang, which is just north of Dandong, they had their own military museum. And an American businessman had gone through that museum, and he saw these dog tags to an American, Troy Cope, in the museum. So he came back and reported it. <clears throat> this is before my time. And we went to the Chinese and said, hey, you've got these dog tags. We're actually looking for this guy. Can you help us? And the Chinese said, we don't know what you're talking about. And it, the relations weren't really good at the time. We don't know what you're talking about. There's no such dog tags. No, you can't come look. And no, we don't have them. So the next time we went back to Shenyang to look at that museum, of course, the dog tags are gone. Um, so now we're working our own kind of, um, and again, this is before my time. I'm just giving you a bit of the history. Right. So now the Soviet Union kind of dissolves. And what happens is that they open up their archives and a Dr. Catherine Witherspoon uh, was one of the first to get in there. And in the archives is where we found out that Soviet pilots, Russian pilots, in order that for them to get credit for a kill, they actually had to show proof. And I can't tell you who. I can only tell you that it was that they found the combat photography of a Captain Zukov who had actually shot down Troy Pope's aircraft. And so we took some copies of that, presented that to the Chinese as evidence that, hey, come on, he really did auger in and Dandong. We'd like to go get him. By this time, relations had improved. The Chinese said, yeah, OK, you, you can come and do your initial kind of survey of the area and, and we'll go from there. So now I come on board and I'm starting to meet with my Chinese counterparts. We're starting to work out how we actually get into Dandong to do this. And we find out that's, that a, a local Chinese businessman had bought that area, had planned to concrete over and set up a warehouse at that site. So we had to pay him off. And eventually we got in there to do the recovery. Now, we didn't find remains. It, a long time had, it had passed, but we did find some personal effects. Uh, we found some boot flaps and um, some other, I think it was the, his web gear from, uh, from this aircraft. And we brought that out. I don't think they got any actual remains. There might have been a, a bone fragment or something. But what we found we recovered, presented to the Cope family, and they were, they were more than satisfied. So we actually were able to go in and, and, and recover his remains. And that's the, the, the Troy Cope story. Now, remember, this is a long time ago, so I'm kind of rehashing this in my mind from, from memory. So I might have gotten some of the details wrong. So if anybody else is watching this and was part of that, you might get a few emails saying Franklin doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. But we did we did the recovery. The Cope family was satisfied. Um, I went, We went back with our uh, the DASD Jennings at the time 
Deputy uh, Assistant Secretary of Defense for that, for POWMI Affairs, presented a gratitude plaque to the mayor of Dandong and put that one to bed. So that's what I did for the China part. But because I speak Korean, we also had <clears throat> remains recovery teams in Unsan, which is just north of uh, Pyongyang, and on the Chosun Reservoir. Now, the Chosun Reservoir is interesting because on the east was the Army and on the west was the Marine Corps. The North Koreans would allow us to do recovery on the east where the Army was. They would not allow us on the west side where the Marines were. And our theory was, well, the Marines had acquitted themselves very, very well. That was an embarrassing time for the North Koreans because they got their butts kicked. And so they're going to let us. So I went back to North Korea on a 10-day survey to make sure that our teams were getting what we were paying the North Koreans to provide them, that they were being cared for. And um, and in the process, you know, got a chance to travel from one side of North Korea to the other and up there to the Chosun Reservoir. So that was kind of a wow. neat so that was my, that was my, my time at the Defense Prisoner of War Missing Personnel Office. Now, and then, lo and behold, I got selected for 06. I'm curious, did you ever – you know, in that time of the defense prisoner war and missing personnel office, like the early part of the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, we had a bunch of folks go missing. How much interaction did you have with that? There was a team looking for, if you remember, uh, Lieutenant Spiker, he was yeah. one of the pilots that, uh, that we lost during that. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they found, they, I think we had a special team looking at that. A lot of that was classified at the time. I think they did find some personal effects. I don't re- think they ever recovered his remains. Um, but so, yes. So that office doesn't just look at past conflicts. Right. It, it, its mission is to recover. Well, the, the most everybody. notable one I remember was Matthew Maupin um, in Iraq. Yeah. Um, he went missing in 2004, I think, Um Ultimately, they, if I'm correct, they did end up finding his remains. I think it was 15 plus years later. Um, you know, convoy that he was on was ambushed. Uh, he was an E4 at the time. I think finally, by the time that they had declared him uh, KIA, they had promoted him to E6, and then they eventually found his remains. But that was a big deal for all of us who were there because there was video of him out there alive at one point and, and everything yep. else. I mean, are you familiar with all that? No, because about that time, I was getting ready to PCS to Okinawa. Gotcha. Okay. So I was getting ready to leave, and so I, I missed a lot of that. And that's, that's what, what the, uh, When I saw that in your file, that was the first name that popped into my head, um, yeah. you know, uh, and, and the whole story. Because I remember, you know, they, they, I literally drove on the road where they got ambushed, and, and people had pointed it out to me um, where the yeah. ambush happened and, and everything. So um, after that, uh, you end up in Pakistan in 2008. How and why? Okay, so so I go to Okinawa as the chief of the uh, Okinawa field office, and basically my role in, for the ne- next three years is to advise the uh, the senior officer, which is a Marine Corps three-star, kind of like a Paul Mill advisor, if you will. I handled all the protests that the Okinawans had about our presence, et cetera. And I'm thinking, you know, I've got this whole Army career, and I've never been deployed to either Iraq or Afghanistan. And I actually asked a Marine Corps general that I was working for at the time if he knew anybody I could talk to to see about getting deployed either one theater or the other. And he said, Mark, let me see what I can do. And uh, what came back from Army Branch is, hey, we got an opening in Pakistan. And I said, well, that's not exactly the same thing, but I guess it's close enough and okay, (laughs) I'll do that. And um, 
so it was, I'll tell you, that was a great, a great experience. And that was when I first went to Pakistan, I was assigned as the army liaison to the Pakistan army. That was kind of a security assistance role, even though I didn't get involved in providing, I did a lot of work in trying to convince the Pakistan army that, um, for instance, one of the things we wanted to get them are these forensic kits that kind of look at uh, IEDs and help you understand where they were made, how they were developed, and kind of give you uh, after-action forensics on on an IED. And couple, I had a couple of trips to Afghanistan where they had these lanes, these IED lanes that they would train the Afghan army in. Um, the Pakistan people are great people. The Pakistan army can be a challenge because they're not, they weren't as interested in what was going on in the frontier Corps with uh, the border with Afghanistan. They're more interested in, in India. And that wasn't really our mission. Our mission was to kind of get them to help with the Taliban and Al Qaeda uh, on the other side of the country. Uh, but <clears throat> I did that. And then I made the mistake of going TDY. And when I came back, the, uh, the Admiral in charge said, you know, Mark, we're trying to uh, expand our mission to a joint task force. I need a chief of staff and all your buddies thought you'd make a good one. So <laughs> that's what happens when you're not there to defend yourself. So I became his chief of staff. We built a mini JTF there in the embassy. Um, and that's when we got involved when, remember when Bergdahl went missing in Afghanistan. And yep. so we, we got involved in some of that. Uh, but the mission really stayed the same. We were still trying to get the Pakistan military and we had a lot of success, particularly with the Navy um, the special forces did a great job with the frontier corps guys at the uh, federally administrated tribal areas. And in many ways that made the Pakistan army a little jealous because we were giving them a lot of attention because they wanted to fight. They wanted to take the fight to the bad guys. And, um, and we were providing them the material and the training to do that. And the SF guys that were there in country that, you know, I, I can't sing their praises enough. They're, they are truly the quiet professionals. They, um, they don't stand out. You won't see a lot of movies made about them, but they are they are awesome, and they did a really really good job with these guys. So that's how I wound up in Pakistan. All right, uh, Pakistan ends, and yep. you go where next? So my next assignment now, and this will be my my sunset assignment because I was getting mm-hmm. coming up on uh, mandatory retirement. So I go to the um, office of the Secretary of Defense, the um, Asia Pacific Security Affairs. Uh, for um, under the uh, undersecretary of defense for policy. So now I'm back in the policy world. I'm assigned to the Asia to the uh, assistant secretary of defense for Asia Pacific security affairs. And once again, I'm working China issues. So I'm now the senior country director for China. And my job is to improve the mill to mill relationship between the U S military and the Chinese military. And of course I failed as did everybody before me and everyone who comes after me, but that's just the nature of the culture of the business. Um, but it was a good, ex- I, I, but I will tell you that my Chinese counterparts are genuine. And, um, and so we both wanted the same thing quite ha- often. What happens is by the time those decisions get sent or those recommendations, get, you know, decisions are made at a much, much higher level, but at the, at, at the grunt level, at, at the working B level, there is real genuine effort to try to make things better. So that was my job. Um, that and I had a couple of other additional tasks. And my last year, I was, uh, you know, you get your annual physical. 
and a very astute uh, public or uh, physician's assistant at the De Lorenzo Clinic there in the Pentagon was reviewing my, my blood work and said, you know, your PSAs are not high considering, you know, they're still within normal range, but the increases are more than incremental. They're, they're fairly dramatic. And so that could be an indicator that um, there might be something going on with your prostate. She recommended I have a biopsy. So on March 7th of 2011, I had a biopsy at Fort Belvoir. And on March 14th, the doctor called me at work and said, Mark, I got some bad news. Um, you do have prostate cancer, and your Gleason score is a 7. And Gleason scores are measured on a scale of 1 to 10. So mine was fairly high. And she recommended I come in. We talked. And she recommended I have surgery. She said, you can do the radiation. And at that time, the old Walter Reed up there in the north, not the one that, you know, the old Walter Reed, they had this great program. It was like a round-robin station an entire day where you talk to everybody. You talk to the surgeons. You talk to the radiologists. You talk to a variety of uh, folks that, can, that provide both treatment, support. And at the end of the day, I decided, you know, I'm going to go ahead with the surgery. <clears throat> there were consequences with that. But the thing about at the time is if you went for radiation and you had a biochemical recurrence, they really can't do surgery because the radiation kind of messes everything up and it's really impossible to do any surgery. If you have surgery first and then you have a biochemical recurrence, then radiation is an option. So I went ahead, had the surgery. Uh, I was forced, I was 54 years old. So in terms of men diagnosed with prostate cancer, I was fairly young because that's usually an older man's disease. At least that's what they used to think. And um, there, the two main consequences of that are impotence and incontinence. And I was very, very lucky on the incontinence part. When I, when I removed the catheter, I had no problem, you know, holding, you know, my bladder and that was all good. Impotence is going to f affect everyone over time, and over time that does get better. And, of course, the, the military will give you medication to improve that. And there's all kinds of other things they can do. Um, I was just interested in getting better. Right. So the, um, <clears throat> the surgery went well. They did analysis of the prostate gland. It was negative at the margins, which meant it had not, in, in their view, escaped. So I figured I'm good to go. This is really, really good stuff. And so I – fat, dumb, and happy for the next several years. But about two years ago, now remember, I, I don't have a prostate. And the prostate is what produces the PSA, the prostate-specific antigen. And that is what is an indication for prostate cancer. So the first time my blood work came back, and it was very, very, very small, minimal, but there, there it was. The prostate was, the PSA was detectable. So I asked the doctor about it, same doctor who did the surgery, and she said, you know, it might be a lab assay thing. Let's not worry about it yet. The following year, uh, it was also detectable, not much of an increase, but it was there. And then about two years later, it started to get bigger. In other words, the detectable, it wasn't just detectable. There was a significant amount of PSAs detected, and this last one was uh, 0.5, which obviously meant there was something going on. So the urologist, different urologists now said, yeah, I recommend you get a, a PET scan. That will determine. And sure enough, it confirmed that I have what's called a biochemical recurrence. And when that happens, Mark, um, not to sound gloom and doom, but if it comes back, you're pretty much going to have to live with it for the rest of your life. And you just have to learn to treat it and manage it. So uh, 
When they found that, they also found hot spots in lymph nodes around the prostate bed. But they also found a hot spot near the colon, in the the lymph nodes in the colon. And so they um, recommended a colonoscopy. And sure enough, colonoscopy confirmed that not only did I have a biochemical prostate cancer, but I also had colorectal cancer. And you know that that expression, God never gives you more than you can handle? (laughs) I was feeling pretty flattered. Um, I was thinking... Okay, what are we going to do? So I will tell you, the good news is, after 39 radiation treatments to treat both the prostate cancer and the colon cancer, because this presented a real challenge to the doctors, 39 radiation treatments, eight cycles over 16 weeks of chemotherapy, surgery on April 1st to remove that section of the colon where the tumor was found. Um, And I can tell you that the colon cancer is essentially gone and the prostate cancer is in remission. So good news on all fronts. Uh, they did give me an ileostomy. If you don't know what that is, basically they take your small intestine, pull it through the abdomen, hook you up to a pouch that gives the colon time to heal where they did the surgery. Luckily I don't have it for the rest of my life. I have three months. I am at my third month now, July 12th. I'm supposed to have my final surgery to hook me back up, put me back together but what I really wanted to talk to you about today was uh, prostate cancer sure, and why that is really, really important. So if you want me to continue, I can. If you want to, I, want, I don't want to keep going and not give you a break. So. No, no. Listen, again, I mean, it's, it's incredibly interesting stuff. I mean, I, you know, I just I'm wondering from your standpoint, you know, you beat it once. And then when it comes back, um, yeah. are you more ready for it or is it like one of those things where it's like hey i'm really gambling with a lot more here the second time around like where's your headspace that's a really good question and i will be honest with you initially it was in a very dark place um because when it came back i'm thinking well this sucks but i can do the uh because i also had the colorectal cancer and i'm thinking well how the heck are the doctors going to do this and the radiation oncologist young guy um Really, really positive, which always helps. And he gave me a very, very positive outlook. <clears throat> so they put you on hormone therapy because testosterone is what feeds prostate cancer. So he started me on, there's a, there's a short course, a long course, and he said, I'm going to put you on what I call a med- middle course, which is nine months of uh, hormone therapy, which basically reduces your testosterone levels to almost nothing. So you're no longer feeding the prostate cancer. Combine that with the radiation treatment, and the PSAs are non-detectable, which is a good thing. So right now, my PSAs are non-detectable. That doesn't mean it's gone. It just means we've kicked it back. And one of the great things about Zero Cancer, they, they have this Zero Cancer Summit where you get to listen to doctors and researchers talk about all the neat things that are going on with prostate cancer research today. And most of those are treating those who have metastatic prostate cancer. And, and I get that because that is the most dire kind of thing you can deal with. And that's, that's the focus. But they also give you some good information. It's very honest. And it's, they don't sugarcoat anything. And that's when I learned that, okay, this is something I will have to deal with for the rest of my life. But I am encouraged by the fact that there is so much new research on what they can do to treat this. And... Um, well, I'll give you some stats because this is really yeah. Well, that's that's what I kind of wanted to get to for a quick moment yeah. here. Um, and this is courtesy again of Zero Cancer, and you can yes. go, 
As far as veterans are concerned, one in five veterans will develop prostate cancer in his lifetime, which is a higher rate than the civilian population of one in eight. Which, yes. again, you, would, you wouldn't think that veterans have any more propensity for cancer just because it, it's you know, so all-encompassing. Um, but prostate cancer is the most common type of cancer diagnosis among U.S. veterans. And I guess when you think about it, because it's obviously a male cancer – um, and there are more males in the military there. Therefore, I guess the percentage would be higher. Nearly 500,000 prostate cancer patients are currently within the VA healthcare system, which seems like a lot. And of course, you can go to uh, zerocancer.org slash veterans to get more information, uh, for those, for, for veterans who are, have questions about prostate cancer. But for you, you know, again, it's, it's the other part of this, this whole thing in your story is that, um, that you currently serve on the DOD's prostate cancer research program. Um, and the consumer review panel. So how do you get that job and sort of what does it entail and what are your sort of duties with it? So the first thing is someone like Zero Cancer, you need a sponsor. So in my case, <clears throat> I started as an advocate with Zero Cancer. And why? And I just want to talk about the advocacy real quick. Sure. That is where you will, you will meet other prostate cancer survivors or other prostate cancer patients who have also become advocates, and these are all men that become incredibly passionate about this. And you engage representatives, you engage staff members with Congress, and you encourage them to, for instance, like the Prostate Cancer Research Project within DOD. One of the things we're trying to do is get them to increase funding from $110 million to $120 million this fiscal year. Uh, there's also the PC Care Act, where we're trying to get, and this, and Congress, uh, Congressman Murphy and Congressman, <clears throat> make sure I get his name right. Yeah, Bobby Rush at Illinois have submitted this proposal that would require the multiple agencies that are looking into prostate cancer research to kind of coordinate and collaborate so that they're not being redundant and they're not wasting. And it's, it's going to be a much more efficient way to look at it. So with the advocacy program, you are with men that share the same experience you have. Um, and you get to learn about their experiences, and then you actually feel like you're doing something to help prostate cancer research. So it, it, once you become an advocate, then a sponsor like Zero Cancer can ask you, would you be interested in taking part as a, a layman consumer reviewer for prostate cancer research within DOD? <clears throat> I didn't hesitate. So they take your resume, and they make a proposal to, the, to DOD to bring you on. Uh, you meet certain criteria. Basically, it, it's a contract without any real. I mean, I can say no at any time, but there are going to be various times um, in August, September, and November where they will meet, and it requires about sixty hours of prep work prior to the actual review panel. And that's where you do your own research. They give you materials to research, and you prepare for the various proposals that are going to be uh, discussed, and you offer your view. As a layman, so you offer the view as a prostate cancer patient or survivor on whether it's a treatment option, on whether it's some kind of support option, on whether it's a, a kind of a research plan that they want to do with, with prostate cancer patients and survivors. I haven't done one yet. I am, I've signed up for the August and the November uh, panels, and I'm waiting for them to come back and tell me, here's what you need to prep for it. These are the dates, and then I can tell you more after I've done it what that's all about. I haven't actually done it yet. So that's what the, um, what the review panel is. And um, 
and again, you feel like you're making a difference, like you're contributing. You're actually doing something rather than sitting back and thinking, oh, woe is me, I have prostate cancer. So it's an opportunity. And the advocacy is the same thing. It's an opportunity for you to <clears throat> actually engage and do something about your situation and your, your diagnosis. Uh, you know, you mentioned one in five veterans. That, that's that's true. And the, um, the American Cancer Society rec- estimates more than 268,000 men will be diagnosed with prostate cancer this year alone. Uh, that's a that's a pretty big number. And currently, there are 30. There are about there are 3.1 million uh, men that have been diagnosed and living with either as a survivor or as a uh, as a patient with prostate cancer, living with the disease. Uh, that's roughly the population of Chicago. So, <clears throat> you know, it's an insidious disease. It has consequences that affect men emotionally, psychologically. Um, I, I take more of a, a stoic approach to that. I just want to beat the son of a gun. And so all that other stuff is kind of just noise. And I want to do whatever I can to help the research guys figure out the best way to treat it and hopefully eventually cure it. And that's that's the ultimate goal. Is there anything about your military career, uh, you know, lessons learned, whatever it may be, training, that has been a source of support for you as you've kind of gone through trying to kick this thing twice? Yeah, that's a super good question, and I think you will identify it, is that, you know, in, in the Army, and I'm going to say, I'm assuming the same thing with the other services, if you are mission-oriented, and you're given a mission, and your focus is to accomplish that mission, everything else kind of takes a back seat. It's just noise. So for me, it's the mission of trying to find better treatments, better outcomes, eventually a cure for prostate cancer. And I've kept that at the forefront of everything I'm thinking about now as I'm dealing with this. I've got my other job, too, which I really enjoy. But this, um, what I, it's that mission focus you know, because, you know, you're given a mission. There's a lot of distractions, a lot of things that can get in the way. And you learn to set those aside and focus on accomplishing the mission and looking at various ways you can do that. That is probably the greatest um, benefit I've taken from my military career to apply to what I'm doing now with uh, zero cancer and, and prostate cancer research treatment and, um, and outcomes. What did you know less about when you first came across it? Prostate cancer or being an FAO? <laughs> Um, prostate cancer because yeah. <laughs> I'd had the opportunity to talk to other fails. And so, you know, and when I first diagnosed prostate cancer, I didn't know too many guys that had it. It's only been a, um, it's, it's been a process. One of the things I'm a, I'm a Mason. I belong to Andrew Jackson Lodge 120 here in Virginia, and we support the zero cancer 5k run every year we've been doing it. Of course, COVID kind of put a damper on it, but, um, sure. we've got another one coming up this June 18th. That's how I first got introduced to Zero. I didn't know who they were, but the fact that our lodge supports um, their 5K and we got to meet the folks that would come in and brief our lodge on, on what it is and what they can expect, that's how I got to know them first. And then, of course, when um, when I got this diagnosis biochemical uh, recurrence, I wanted to know more. And so I got more involved, more involved. Um, Allie Manson is kind of like our – she is our fearless leader. She gives us direction and we follow uh, Hal is really great at preparing you for things like this and uh, in your interactions with Congress. They've got a great 
organization and a really, really, and they provide a lot of support too. So there, you can get support with other prostate cancer through zero cancer. They have support groups. They got mentorship programs. Uh, and zero three sixty is one of the ways that they, they can do that. It's um, <clears throat> great organization. Can't say enough good about them. to, uh, to the message to veterans and for veterans. Um, you know, again, one, uh, Generally, this is what's thought of as an old man's disease, and, and uh, most people aren't in the military past 40, which is when you need to start getting that, hey, bend over kind of exam. Right. Um, so what's is there a message to younger, healthier uh, people in the military and males in the military who um, probably need to be more aware now than they ever have before about this? You know, I'm not a doctor, so I got to be careful here. But um, just like colon cancer now, it used to be something that you had your colonoscopy at 55. They're now recommending it at much younger because younger men and women are being diagnosed with it. Um, the same might be said with uh, prostate cancer. I was 54 years old. I was considered young when I was diagnosed. And when I was in that round robin at, at Walter Reed, there were a couple of men in there my age or younger that had been diagnosed with prostate cancer. So... There's a lot of debate about the efficacy of the prostate-specific antigen test, the PSA test. I personally, and this is my personal view because of how it affected me, I advocate for a PSA test. I think it's a, it's a good indicator. It's not an, a be-all for everything. You, you, you will need other follow-up. But I am one that supports and advocates for men getting PSA tests annually and then discussing with their doctor what those results mean. And, you know, yes, you can get uh, – there's different ways to interpret it, and there's a lot of debate about whether it's a, worth the time or not. Quite frankly, I don't see the downside to getting it, and if you discuss it with your doctor, um, I think it's it, it can only benefit you one way or the other. It can either relieve you from worry or – indicate there might be something going on. You might want to do something more aggressive in terms of procedure to find out what's going on. You know, one more military, I guess, related question to all this. Um, you, know, you talk about mission focus and everything else. And I would tell you that uh, that to me is a great way to look at it, right? If, if, if you approach it as a mission set, uh, for a lot of us, it's much easier to digest cognitively. It's much easier just to to be able to understand how to go about beating it. That said, you know, everything we do in the military, there's very few solo operations, right? There's very few solo things that we do alone that it's all on you and you figure it out all on your own. You got a ton of different people to help you out, support systems, staff, processes right. that are already in place. I don't think there's any of that. I mean, I could be wrong. I'll, I'll defer to you, but I don't think there's any of that when it comes to cancer. It's just you and medicine and, and prayers and hoping for the best, right? Like, I mean, is that sort of the way you have to deal with it? No, there are support groups for, uh, for prostate cancer. And so Walter Reed has one, but they also zero cancer has one. Now you've got to take the initiative and you've got to kind of join or become involved in it, but they are there and they are there for you to take advantage of. And there's, there's no cost to you other than your time and maybe the kind of emotional impact that, you got to finally admit that you got this thing and there are other men that have it. Yeah. I mean, I guess I I just, to me, it sort of could feel lonely if you will. Um, It's you versus the disease and nobody else and support groups are great. But at the end of the day, it's your body, which you at this point have little control over versus something that you have no control over. 
Yes. And, and, and you go through periods and I did, I went through a, a couple of periods and you, you can ask my wife, God bless her because she's put up with it where I was just like, you know, Oh, what was me? Why me? And then I finally realized, you know, not why me, why not me? I mean, because so many other men are diagnosed with this too. I'm not that special. And so don't wallow in the, Oh, woe is me. Why me? Just think, okay, look, yes, you have this thing. Now what are you going to do about it? And you go through that and that's probably normal. I can't speak for everybody, but you do go through your ups and downs. And I went through some dark places initially with this. I'm one that talks about it. I don't hold it in. So I, my colleagues at work, they all know my situation, what I've been going through. My friends and family all know the guys at the lodge all know I don't keep it in. I let, I, I just, Hey, especially if they ask and I'll tell them and I'll give them the whole story on everything. And that helps too, because you've got that support, even if it's just minimal, Hey, I'm with you or I'll pray for you or I'll keep you in my thoughts. All of that kind of adds up to know that, you know, it's, you aren't necessarily completely alone. There are folks, if you share this experience with them, uh, there are folks out there that are, that are going to get behind you on this. Well, look, it's been amazing talking to you. I, I know it's not always the uh, uh, typical sort of conversation that we have here, but I think it was important. I think it's worthwhile to give it some some notoriety to a, a bunch of our listeners and a bunch of our, our veterans who are, who are fans of the show because, obviously, again, um, you never know when this stuff is going to land at your front door, right? Like, there's there's no predicting it. There's no way to tell how it goes. And the best thing that we can do is arm people with information and, and availability and access to things like that. And, again, it's zero cancer dot org slash veterans is the place to go or just zero cancer dot org um you know 30 years of a military career and you know it's, i say it all the time mark that some people are doing as much as they accomplish in their military careers they're doing even greater bigger and better things out of uniform post-career than they did while they were in uh and i certainly think this is one of the more uh you know noble and beneficial ways to spend your time is being an advocate for something that that really can can change the course of lives and families everywhere but certainly in the in the veteran community appreciate that mark thank you very very much uh, well it's been a great job <laughs> I, i've done a couple of these yeah, yeah. Again, <laughs> this was, you made this easy i didn't know what to expect you made this very very easy and very comfortable thank you well we we appreciate it again zero cancer.org mark franklin thank you so much for being part of the hazard ground thanks you've been listening to kill cliff's hazard ground podcast hosted by mark zeno If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.